Hi, guys. Welcome to this week's episode of So What Else. I'm your host, Caitlin. As you know, So What Else is a story-based podcast. So today we have Clarissa Mall on to share her story. And I'm just going to give it to you straight. This episode is about grief. And I know what you're thinking. It's the holiday season. Why are you being such a buzzkill? I don't want to think about sad things right now. But you know what? The reality is most of you listening to this right now are either dealing with grief this holiday season or you know someone who's dealing with grief. It doesn't go away over the holidays. In fact, a lot of times it's intensified and it's easy to just kind of get swept up in the like, oh, yay, the holiday season, such a wonderful time. And to just kind of stuff those feelings or to not be aware that there's people around us really dealing with some deep, deep grief and pain. This might be your first holiday season without your person. This might be your 50th holiday season without your person. It really doesn't matter. Clarissa talks about in this episode how once grief impacts you, it is a constant companion for the rest of your life, an unwelcome companion, but a companion nonetheless. And so it's with you. So I know that this episode is going to hit home for so many of you. Clarissa shares about how she lost her husband, Rob, tragically and suddenly. And she does a lot of work around grief. She has a book called Beyond the Darkness, which is the most beautiful book I've ever read about grief. She has a podcast. All of that is linked in the show notes. She has a very beautiful way of speaking about grief. In this episode, we talk about grief in a more, you know, conceptual way. We talk about it also in a very practical way. She talks about navigating the holidays. She talks about navigating grief with someone that maybe you had a really complicated relationship with. There's just a lot, a lot in here. And I was moved to tears when I was re-listening to it to make editing notes for Maddie Carps. So I really believe that this is going to hit home for so many of you. I mentioned that she has a book. It's called Beyond the Darkness. It is available on Audible. So if you want to listen to her book on audio, please do us a favor. Go on over to audibletrial.com slash SWE. That's audibletrial.com slash SWE. You can get a free trial, copy of her book, and you help out the podcast. All right, stay tuned. Clarissa, welcome to So What Else. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm so excited. I just finished your book. I've been reading it for the past week and it's beautiful. You are a really, really, really beautiful writer. Thank you very much. (laughs) Why don't you introduce yourself to us? Like, who are you? What do you do? Sure. Um, so my name is Clarissa Mall, and uh, it's Mall Like Doll. And uh, I am a writer. I live north of Boston in beautiful New England. And uh, I've got four children and uh, just a really good life. Um, for many years, I worked in nonprofit marketing and communications. And then after my husband's death, I pivoted to writing in bereavement advocacy. So that's where I work now, uh, writing articles and um, the book that you held in your hands and um, speaking about uh, what it means to lose someone that we love, what grief mm-hmm. actually looks like, and how we can care well for each other through this really hard time. I love it. Amazing. I mean, truly, this book was the best book I've ever read on grief. <laughs> I mean it. And I sent it while I was reading it. I sent it to my friend and I said, hey, listen, you know, she recently lost her dad. And I was like, I really think that this 
would speak to you. I really do. You know what I mean? I just felt like there was so, so much rich content in there. But so you're not too far off from me. We are, I'm in Jersey. Oh, okay. Yeah. So you're up in Boston. I had family up in Boston. I love that area. Oh my goodness. It's so, it's so pretty. I bet it's a little probably colder for you guys than it is for us right now. It is. Yes. And we are kind of to that season where it's cold enough that you just want it to snow. Like let's get started with the winter sports already. My kids and I love to cross country ski and ice skate. So we're just ready for a cold snap that'll bring that temperature down and freeze the ponds and send us some snow. Oh, that's so fun. My husband and I did cross country skiing one time. That is no joke. It's a lot of work. Yeah. It is a lot of work, but it was really fun. Like we've always said, like we would do it again. My husband's from Colorado. So we had actually, that was when we were living out there. So we went in Colorado. So it was like beautiful. It was so nice, but it was hard. Yeah. Yeah. It is. It's a, it's definitely an aerobic. It's a workout. Uh Uh-huh. But awesome. Do you guys have all the gear and everything? We do. During the pandemic, I decided, you know what, we're just going to invest in this. This is something we love. So I bought everybody gear. And it means now that when it snows, we can just go out into the street even, or uh, down the road to a local farm and uh, cross-country ski there. So we don't have to go very far to really enjoy the snow. That's really cool that it doesn't have to be such a thing. Like load all the stuff, drive all the way to the mountains, do the thing. Like you could just do it right in your neighborhood. That's That's amazing. Yeah. That's beautiful. I love that. I love that. So listen, So What Else is a story-based podcast. So people come on and share their story. We've had a range, a wide range of different types of stories, but I just feel like people's stories are really life-changing. You know, it just helps other people. People connect to different aspects of it. And I think that it's good for us to hear stories that we even don't relate to because it helps us build empathy and understanding for other people like in the world around us, you know? So Let's just kind of start there. I know your story is a hard one, Mm -hmm. but I actually want to start way back when you had babies and your husband became interested in like end of life conversations a lot. Would you take us back there and kind of tell me a little bit about that season for you guys? Sure. In the early 2000s, the Terry Schiavo case was all over the news as people wrestled with what the end of life should look like. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so we heard a lot of words like euthanasia, death with dignity, um, mercy killing, some of those kind of, that kind of language was very much a part of those early 2000 years, um, certainly running through the news and running through a lot of people's heads as well. Mm -hmm. And Rob was a journalist and so was reporting on the case and uh, started to wonder what that actually meant for Christians. What did it Mm -hmm. mean for a person beyond the politics and beyond Mm -hmm. the deep ethical conversations? What did it mean for someone who believed in uh, God, who trusted Jesus to end their life well? And Mm. so ever the inquisitive learner, uh, he took a job at a funeral home working the night shift, and he joined hospice as a volunteer because he wanted to get close to understand, you know, what it looked like for people who were wrestling with end-of-life decisions. Mm -hmm. And um, what he found was 
really amazing. Um, he found often that people of deep religious faith held on for cures uh, mm-hmm. until the very end, often forgoing what could be a peaceful ending with um, the kind of desperate grasping for a miracle. And then he also found um, other very practical things like that saying, I forgive you and I love you mm-hmm. were some of the most important words that a dying person could say and that a grieving family could receive in those uh, last days. Mm. And so all of that experience really reshaped, I think, his heart. And uh, his book, The Art of Dying, Living Fully into the Life to Come, came out of that experience. Mm -hmm. It was published in the um, early 2000s, and it came about while we had three little kids, um, three children under the age of five. So We were talking about death a long time before a lot of our peers were uh, over Uh dinner time with the kids around, uh, sitting in the evenings as I edited his chapters and as he wrote, or even just as he needed to kind of process what he had experienced after a morning of sitting in hospice with uh, someone who had become his friend uh, Mm -hmm. as he attended to them in their dying days. So um, yeah, death and dying, it was was a big part of our life when Mm -hmm. we were early married. But um, I have realized now, uh, 20 years later, that it was an instructive period that I'm actually really grateful for. Yeah. So I imagine you guys were having like tons of conversations like about logistical things in addition to beyond that, like logistical things like the will or like stuff like that. And then beyond that, like more like emotional conversations. What is that like? Like, how do you sit down on a Tuesday? Like, how was your day? Good. How was your day? Good. Okay. I t- Tonight I want to talk about like if we should remarry if one of us dies. You know what I mean? Like how do you have these conversations with your partner? Yeah. That's a great question because I think – Honestly, it's that first conversation that holds a lot of folks back from actually talking about it at all. Yeah. Uh, So the way I like to compare it is to the birds and the bees conversation that you have with your kids. It's another of those dreaded conversations. You know, they're going to be, somebody's going to get the willies. Uh, You're going to get nervous. You're going to feel sweaty. You're going to wish it was over. Uh, You know, it's a great comparison. Well, how are those conversations best held with your child? Mm -hmm. It's not a one and done. You don't sit down one day and lay it all out and say, okay, well, I've um, completed that task all done. I don't ever have to talk about this again. Mm -hmm. No, you begin with small conversations about body safety and privacy when they're young, um, about honoring their bodies and honoring other people's bodies. And as they grow older, the complexity of that conversation uh, deepens. You start to add other conversations that are harder, um, that have more complexity to them, certainly some gray area even. Mm -hmm. And, um, and that relationship as it grows, the conversation is growing alongside of it. Mm-hmm. And I think really that's the best way to have conversations about end-of-life issues. Mm-hmm. You begin with something small, like a conversation that just says, hey, you know what? Someday when you die, I'm going to really miss you. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's amazing how many couples don't even want to say those words to mm-hmm. each other. 
And you begin with something small. Hey, you know, it's probably a good idea for us to both have our names on the checking account. Do we have our names on all of the checking accounts or all of our accounts um, so that, you know, if there's if something happened, I'd be able to access the information um, and starting something with something small like that can be a gateway to deeper conversation over time because our thoughts and our opinions about end of life, they can change over time. Mm -hmm. You know, the decisions that you make when you're young and you have small children perhaps might be different than the decisions you would make for yourself after you were an empty nester or after you have received a terminal diagnosis. And so really the relationship goes along with those conversations over time. Hopefully uh, deepening your love for each other as Mm -hmm. you talk about this hard thing. Yeah. Yeah. That's so helpful. That And that's so interesting. You know, when I was in college, I took a, an elective course called death and bereavement, which was like weird. People were like, why would you take this? You know what I mean? But I was, I just, I don't know. I was interested in it. And it was so, so much of what you're saying was kind of the things that we talked about, you know, in that class and how so many people are caught so off guard by death and loss. And there's just, there's so much there. Like, obviously you can never be prepared. You can never be like, okay, yep. Like if my loved one died tomorrow, we're good. Like, Mm -hmm. of course not, but you can do things so that the transition, there's not as many logistical hurdles. Am I, would you agree with that? That's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, folks have asked me, um, well, did, did, do you feel like you were prepared for your husband's Mm -hmm. death when it came because you spent so much time talking about it? And, um, yes and no, I think yes, because there were so many logistical issues that had been taken care of that had been decided in advance. When he died, I was able to execute on those. And um, it left a lot of the brain work um, out of the picture, which when you've lost a loved one, you don't have the capacity for that really anyways. Totally. And then there's the piece of uh, grief mm-hmm. that you're never actually prepared for. Yeah. So I think as in as much as you're able to handle some of those things in advance, you're actually creating emotional space for yourself when mm-hmm. the time comes so that you can do the hard and necessary work of grieving actively. I love that. I love that. By taking care of the logistical stuff, you're making emotional space for yourself, which you're desperately going to need at that time. I think that's really, really, really beautiful. So, okay. So your husband became very interested in these things. You talked about it all the time. He published a book called The Art of Dying. And then about if I correct me if I'm wrong, maybe like 10-ish years later, you guys were on a family vacation. That's and, right. Okay. Tell tell us about that a little bit. Yeah. And um, in the middle of our family vacation um, on a long ridgeline hike in Mount Rainier National Park, um, my husband, Rob, fell to his death. Um, and it was an accident and um, a terrible a terrible tragedy that, of course, you could never plan on an itinerary, nor would you wish to. And um, so, yeah, uh, just uh, shy of a decade after he had written that book, um, we we were asked by God to live that story mm-hmm. uh, in a way that was very painful and intimate. And um, and so, you know, sudden loss, traumatic loss is... Um, 
is a unique kind of grief. You know, every person who has lost someone that they love, there's a there's a universality that binds us together. Yeah. That it doesn't matter how you lost your person or how I lost my person, who your person was to you, an aunt, an uncle, a husband, a friend. There's something about the sorrow that binds us together. And that is really a mercy because mm-hmm. in those moments of grief, we don't feel as alone um, as we might if... Um, Um, if grief weren't so universal, if it weren't something that we all had to face. And yet, in the midst of its universality, there is a uniqueness to each person's loss. Mm -hmm. Um, My loss was sudden and traumatic. And so I can't really step into the shoes of someone who watched a loved one um, waste away to cancer. Um, I have to sit and be observant. Uh, I have to be a listener and, um, and honor their experience as unique from my own. And I think that we can do that. We can do that while also holding in the same hand that um, all of the burdens that we share are common to our humanity. And there's a comfort in that as well. Um, but, you know, our culture wants to kind of pit uh, pit certain losses against each yes. other, you know, like, oh, you know, I'll often hear, uh, I'm so sorry for your loss. I've only lost a friend. Mm-hmm. And oh, I hate that word only. Yeah. Because yeah. the loss of a friend is a deep and abiding loss. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's a universality in that. I, I know how it feels to have someone you love dearly suddenly be taken from you. Mm-hmm. And and yet, I also don't know what it is like to lose a friend in that way. Mm-hmm. And so I can sit with compassion for that person and they for me as we patiently learn about each other's loss um, and also, you know, hold hands and walk forward into a life where we can thrive again. Mm. That's so, it's so beautifully said. You know, I lost my brother about eight years ago and something that I say a lot is it's like, oh yes, it, it, it brought so much comfort to me when people would reach out and be like, hey, I lost my brother too, actually, Mm -hmm. or whatever. I lost someone. So, you know, I get it to a degree. And also no one really fully gets it because it is unique for every story, right? So I love how you say that, that there are things that bind us just as humans, right? Mm -hmm. Like if you've experienced grief, then you are automatically, you have a bond with someone else who has walked through grief and it's also unique at the same time. Yeah, and you know, I wanna say, Caitlin, I'm sorry for your loss of your brother because there is no amount of time that passes where it doesn't hurt anymore. Yeah. You know, we learn to carry that burden of grief and it changes for us over time. But, you know, as as I'm sure you know, that after that first year mark, Mm-hmm. Um, you know, people stop mentioning your person. Yeah. Uh, they, you know, sometimes it's, they don't want to make it hurt more as though it could um, totally. by saying their name. And so they don't mention the name of your person or folks have just moved forward with their lives. And mm-hmm. you can often feel left behind in your loss because eight years later, 10 years later, 15 years later, that person is still missing from your life. Yeah. And um, and so, you know, I think it's important to acknowledge that, that, that grief walks with us for the rest of our lives in some capacity or another. Hopefully, we learn to walk with it as a companion so that we're able to grow in that mm-hmm. experience and that um, it doesn't become something that crushes us. Mm-hmm. But, um, but it's certainly a weight that doesn't ever go away. Mm-hmm. The first words of your book immediately 
brought tears to my eyes. They said, this is a book I never wished to write about a life I never wished to live. That's and I just thought that was, I was like, oh, I stopped after the first line. And I was like, oh my, like, if that is not, it's such a brave thing for you to say, you know what? Like, I, if you had asked me, you know, way back when I got married, like, hey, do you want to write a book like about death and dying and, and, grief and walking through that. And like, you would have speaking engagements and you would be on podcasts and you, people would know your name and things like that. Like you wouldn't want it. I'm sure. I would say, no, thank you. No, thank you. Right. (laughs) Yeah. And yet here you are pushing into that and leaning into that, you know, honestly, like I wanted to just sit on this podcast and just read your entire intro aloud, (laughs) but that would be such a poor use of time. But like, it's so beautiful. The intro is so beautiful. The whole book is, but specifically I was just like drawn in right away. I just think that there was just so, it was just so rich. There was so much there. Something that really caught my attention too early on in the book is that you talk about how we consider death, like the D word Mm -hmm. and people don't say it. Tell us a little bit about that. Like, where? what do you think that comes from? Why? What can we do to fix that? Yeah. Well, it's I. It's jarring for some people that I only talk about my husband as died or dead. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I don't ever use the term pass away. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't use the euphemisms to describe what happened to him uh, because death is horrible. It is, um, it rends the fabric of families, uh, of communities. It's not the way that life was supposed to be. And I Mm -hmm. think that when we acknowledge that fully, we've got to use the real words. Um, we do this with our children again, when we talk to them about their bodies. Um, yeah. You know, we're encouraged to use real language about body parts because it's a way of honoring what is. Mm-hmm. And uh, in, a, in a difficult and heartbreaking way, when we're willing to use the word died or dying or dead, we honor the weight of what has actually happened to the person that we love and, mm. and how that has shaped our own existence. Um you know, if you are a person of faith or not, a lot of times you'll hear uh, people say things like, um, you know, she's with the angels now, mm-hmm, or mm-hmm. she's with Jesus, or he's in heaven. And there are a lot of complexities related to saying that to kids anyways, and that's a whole nother ball of wax, yeah. talking to children using abstract language. Um, yeah. But um, but honestly, we're not all that different from those children. Mm. and. Using abstractions to talk about death is an easy way of kind of pushing aside the hardness, the hurt, the the bad smells that come with a death, mm-hmm. um, the sights, the sounds, all mm-hmm. of that. We we kind of want to brush it away, and it's understandable why, mm-hmm. um, because it is terrible. But um, when we see the darkness for what it is. I think we're actually able to appreciate the light for what God offers us in our grief. Mm, I love that. I've never, I never thought of it that way. You know, I thought, I don't know, you know, it's like, oh, well, you don't want to make people uncomfortable mm-hmm. or what, you know, what I mean? but it's like, you're right. By not saying death or died or die, you're right. We're kind of just like, 
dumbing it down. You know what I mean? And making it sound like it's not that bad. And like, it is really bad. It is really bad. And the pain associated with it is horrible. Mm -hmm. And we shouldn't just make it sound like it was just like, oh, well, you know, like it it was like a not big deal thing. You know what I mean? And Mm -hmm. I loved in your book, how you also called out, you were like, you know, when people say things like, well, God needed another angel. You were like, that's not theologically correct. Like in really (laughs) any religion, like, you know what I mean? Like, People don't die and become angels. That's not actually a real thing. You know what I mean? So it's like, maybe we should stop saying that. Um, But I just, it's so true. I did want to ask, and I hope this is okay to ask, you know, when you found out, obviously, like you said, you guys were on vacation. So Rob had gone on a hike. You were back with your kids. You had four children, right? And you, I assume like a park ranger, police officer came and told you what, how do you then turn and give that information to your children? Mm, that's a really great question. Um, it is perhaps, I think in my years of parenting, the hardest, uh, those were the hardest moments that I have ever faced as a parent mm. were um, those next minutes and hours where um where that information had to spread beyond me, uh, beyond really the gatekeeper of the family. And, um, you know, when I think about that time, um, it's actually something I don't talk about publicly. Mm. And so I'm really glad you asked actually, (laughs) because I think in our culture, in, in a, in a highly sharing culture because of social media, um, you know, we're accustomed to inviting people into the most intimate spaces, mm-hmm. um, our bathrooms. Um, yeah. I just remember, you know, when I was a kid growing up, my, you know, if we had company over, my mom would be like, clean the back of it. We got it. It does oh, yeah. counter look clean. Right. Because it's an intimate space and it's yeah. awkward to invite someone into our intimate space. And um, there's a place for that, mm-hmm. but there's also really painful sacred places that are intimate. Mm. And uh, a lot of times when a death happens in someone's family or in your social circle, you can feel like you just need to say something, that you need to talk about those things. You get a lot of questions and you're not sure how to answer them. Um, And so what I found for that period of time where we had to share the information with the kids was that that was just space I would claim as sacred silence. Mm. And that that was just something I wasn't going to talk about. Mm -hmm. Um, When I think about it, I think maybe only about three or four people in my life actually know what Mm -hmm. those moments were like Mm -hmm. Uh, because I needed to tell someone because I needed someone to share that burden with me, but I didn't want to tell everyone. Yeah. And, you know, I have a a dear friend who uh, lost a loved one to cancer and, you know, those last hours and days of loving someone through a cancer diagnosis are are heart-wrenching. And it's okay to not share that. It's okay mm-hmm. to not take pictures. It's okay to not post it on social media. Mm-hmm. It's okay to not post it on your CaringBridge uh, website if you choose not to. And I think in our culture where we feel like we should share those things, mm-hmm. it can come as an unusual answer for someone to say, I choose not to share that. Um, mm-hmm. But that's an okay response to loss as well. I love that. And I, I really appreciate that. And it's interesting because a similar sort of sentiment came up in a, 
an interview I just did last week, which was about a totally different thing, not grief related, but like a huge marital issue that had occurred. Mm -hmm. And she is now public and open about it, but talked about how like there is wisdom in knowing like which things you share and which things you don't or when you share and when you don't and who you share. And it like, it doesn't have to be all or nothing all the time, you know? And I think that that's interesting that it just shares those themes. And I really appreciate that. And I think that there's so much wisdom in that, especially for you as a mom, Mm -hmm. protecting your kids. Yeah, because this isn't only my story. Yeah. Uh, This is the story of my husband's family, of my family, of my extended family, of the friends who knew and loved him. Yeah, Mm -hmm. it's we, even as it is my own unique story, I share it with other people. And so that's also a way of honoring them. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Something that really stuck out to me also in your book is that, you know, I think it's easy for people to kind of think like, okay, if I ever lost... Mm-hmm. blank person, my spouse, my child, something, you know, I would absolutely, I would die. Mm-hmm. I would emotionally die. And I would, I wouldn't be able to go on. And then there was this quote in your book that I'm going to try and get through without crying because it brings <laughs> tears to my eyes every time I read it. You said many times since Rob died, I have had to remind myself that I have not died too. Parts of me are gone forever. Yes but blood still courses through my veins. My heart beats a steady rhythm. I am still alive and I do not want to simply hang on for the rest of my earthly days. I want to live them fully in the same wholehearted way I did before death and grief darkened my doorstep. I want the pain of Rob's death to transform me, not cripple me. (sighs) And then you go on to talk about how flourishing after the death of a loved one is a choice. And Mm -hmm. I mean, that was like, that hit me smack in the face where I just think there, I mean, there is so much to that because I think that sometimes it's easy to feel like if I flourish after the loss of this person, that's like dishonoring to them. Mm -hmm. What do you think about that? Yeah, I think that's a very normal and natural response. Um, I think going back to the beginning there, there is a period where you just, when your life has ended as you knew it, it does feel like what more could there be for me? And I think those feelings are a normal part of coping with uh, our loss of wrapping our heads around what has happened. Um, But, you know, it's it's not healthy to stay there. And uh, there are numerous studies, um, empirical research about resilience that tell us that grieving people not only can thrive again, but will thrive again mm. if they make the choices to um, to step forward toward new life. And, you know, I think for a lot of us, that feels like guilt. Uh, yes. Like I'm leaving my person behind, uh, that I'm turning my back on that person. And so a lot of my work in bereavement advocacy is to encourage folks, no, no, you're bringing that person with you. Yeah. Every time you are, um, you extend hospitality, you are expressing the hospitality of that person that uh, opened their home to you for years and years. You are remembering them in a really beautiful way. Um, every time you 
um, read a book or watch a movie that reminds you of that person and brings a twinge of sadness, it can also be a connection point to Mm -hmm. remembering your person in a way that brings you peace or satisfaction, that offers you the opportunity to say, I'm sorry, Mm -hmm. or or to say, I forgive you. Mm -hmm. There are numerous ways that we carry our person into the lives that we live without them. And this is really the task of grieving. The task Mm -hmm. of grieving is to reorient our lives around that loss. Yeah. And it's to figure out how to carry the memory of that person forward into our new lives. And um, it's not just a possibility. If you want it, it is a probability that you can thrive again. Mm, Absolutely. You know, you do mention in your book how you said that you reached a point where you felt scared to get like too far beyond the searing pain of that night, which sounds weird, but I got it immediately. (laughs) You know what I mean? It's like one of those things where you're like, this doesn't make sense, but it makes total sense, you know? Mm -hmm. Because of course, like naturally it would be like, okay, I just want to get as far away from this memory as possible. And over time, maybe the memory will dull, it won't hurt as bad or blah, blah, Mm -hmm. whatever. But there's also a fear in that because you feel like, well, I don't, I don't want to not have these gut-wrenching emotions. That's right. Yeah. And when people talk about uh, grief being like a wound or, um, you know, that it'll scab over and scar and that it'll fade, that's actually kind of scary to people who have lost yeah. a loved one because there's nothing I want less than to have Rob fade from my memory. Right. I don't, I don't want to carry, uh, I don't want to someday, you know, as it were, look down at my arm and see no scar there anymore. Right. Um, I always want to be marked by his life and yes, even by his death. But I also don't want to live like I have an open gaping wound walking around Yeah, Um, because, you know, that is just not a healthy way to live either. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, it is, there's a tension there between releasing the, um, the deep pain that is associated with that acute season of early grief. And, you know, you decide what early grief means to you. Mm -hmm. Um, but, um, and, and stepping forward, but it will always hurt. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and that's where a lot of the language that we use around grief, um, you know, time heals all wounds, that kind of thing. It it just kind of falls apart because this isn't the same kind of wound, like the kind that you get when you fall in the basketball court and skin your knee. Totally. Totally. Um, something that comes up time and time again in your book is that you talk about grief, as being our companion. And Mm -hmm. you talk about how flourishing comes not from recovery from grief, but in companionship with it. And like you totally personify grief in your book in that way. And it's like very beautiful and like helps to picture it. You know what I mean? It just like Mm -hmm. helps to get in it for sure. Talk to me about that though. Cause I had never heard that before, like companionship with grief. Like, what do you mean by that? What does that look like? Yeah. Well, um, the the easiest way I think to describe it is to envision going back to work after your person dies. And folks come up and they hug you, but it's kind of stiff. Yeah. Um, maybe they sit down at the table at, in the lunchroom, but they don't know, should I sit beside her or should I not sit beside her? And so they leave an empty chair there. Mm-hmm. Why are they doing this? 
It's because they see something you don't in a way. They see this companion of grief that you've brought with you. Mm. Um, there's there's someone, as it were, filling that chair. That's your sorrow that you take with you. Mm-hmm. And you should. You should take your grief with you. Mm. There is no place where your grief isn't welcome. Mm-hmm. Um, but it can be hard to understand that... Um, that grief is something that goes everywhere with you. Mm-hmm. And uh, we all know it. If you've walked down the aisle in the grocery store, maybe it's the coffee aisle for you, and you just get hit with that wave of scent, and suddenly you're remembering him brew coffee in the morning or bringing a cup of coffee to her at the end of the day, and all of those memories come rushing back. Why is that? Because grief's in the aisle with you in the grocery store. Mm-hmm. And when we understand that grief operates this way, we realize, okay, I'm going to take this thing with me everywhere I go. But grief isn't just a thing. It changes with us over time. It's kind of like a child that is whiny and cries a lot and then grows into a teenage years and hopefully over the years matures into uh, something that is wise, that offers us direction and perspective. And so in that way, grief does feel kind of like a friend, Mm -hmm. uh, an unwelcome friend, (laughs) albeit, but but something that we can learn to live with and and cope beside Mm -hmm. and also um, tap into for wisdom when we need it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I think that It helped me to hear you say that, you know, to talk about grief as a Mm -hmm. companion, an unwelcome companion, obviously. Mm -hmm. But yeah, like it's not something that you need to spend the rest of your days like fighting against it, like get away from me, get away. Because like it's not going to. Like Mm -hmm. once you've experienced a deep loss, like grief will be with you forever. So what would you like to do? Like rage against it for forever or walk with it, you know, like as a Mm -hmm. companion? And I think- it's beautiful. The rage is exhausting. Yes. And um, and surprisingly, the companionship is far e- easier. Yeah. And there are many times where I have uh, sat in a work meeting and um, or been in a social situation. And because of my own experience of loss, I have been able to say, what would grief say in this moment? You know, mm. how 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 could grief inform this conversation? Um, what gentleness might be needed here? What kind of wisdom, um, what kind of acknowledgement of deep pain should happen in this moment because of what I understand loss to be? And I think that's where we see grief's companionship not being something that only drags us down, that only remember reminds us of the hardest moment in our life, but also encourage us us toward new life again and toward uh, reaching out with the comfort that we've received. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. The most beautiful picture of that in your book was when you talked about the soap. (laughs) You said you came home from that vacation Mm -hmm. that changed your life forever and you, in your shower, saw Rob's bar of soap. Would you tell us a little bit about that? That's right. And it was hard for me to see Mm -hmm. that bar of soap there. It was kind of like standing in an elevator and not knowing whether you should make eye contact. Yeah, yeah, totally. (laughs) Uh, We feel very awkward with one another all of a sudden. And uh, my mom, who had grown up with a Depression-era mother, 
had always taught me that when a bar of soap was running low, you took the new one and the old one and you wet them both down and you press them together and then you'd let them sit and dry and they would harden against each other. And then you could use that little bit of soap that was left Mm -hmm. instead of just throwing it away, that it still had purpose, even though it was leftover or small. Mm -hmm. And that's what I did with uh, Rob's bar of soap. I um, took my a brand new lavender bar and Mm -hmm. I wet them both down and I pressed them together and let them dry. And it was kind of a a picture of how I see my life. Um, Yes, there are parts of his life and mine that are slowly wearing away. And -hmm. and it's a painful reality that comes with losing someone you love. And yet um, his life and mine has given me purpose. And um, there's still so much more life to live. And it's in large part because I understand that in some way we'll always be bonded together. Mm. Yeah. I th- the soap thing, I-, I was like, oh my gosh. I was like, this mm-hmm. is like the most beautiful picture. It it just makes so much sense. I loved it. I was like, I am going to use this like forever. <laughs> this is so good. You know, in your book, you also though move on mm-hmm. to give like really, really practical advice, you know? So you talk a lot about, you know, the idea of grief. And like we said, like grief being your companion and all all of these types of things that are more theoretical type things. You Uh know what I mean? I don't even know if that's the right word. But then you also move on to very practical things. Like, Mm -hmm. okay, if you've just very recently experienced a loss, like here are some ways that you can like care for your body, Mm -hmm. care for your mind. Obviously, don't say all of them. It's like, this doesn't need to be an exhaustive list. But what are some just quick practical tips you have for people who may have just very, very recently lost someone? Yeah. Well, uh, losing a loved one is a lot like giving birth. Uh, mm-hmm. it is, it is a, uh, it is a physiological, emotional, spiritual, uh, event. And so, um, the same kind of care that you would give to a new mom, we should give to a grieving person. Yeah. Give them a lot of space to rest, mm-hmm. give them good, healthy meals, don't expect them to lift heavy things, mm-hmm. you know, whatever yeah. that, whatever that means, you know, and we're not talking about furniture here for grieving people, although maybe that is, yeah. but you know, what kind of heavy lifting can we take off of the plates of, um, of people who are bereaved? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and those kinds of activities, I think, um, Remembering that, uh, you know, a grieving person grieves long after the event itself in the same way that a new mom needs help six months, a year after her baby is born. Mm -hmm. Um, We can continue to support that family and um, we can remember that person together with them as a way of of bringing joy. Mm -hmm. And um, so when I think about things that grieving people can do, I think Treat yourself as though you've done the hardest thing. Go mm-hmm. ahead. It's okay. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're able, take time off of work. If you're not able, um, you know, advocate as much as you can for yourself. Mm-hmm. Uh, have a friend advocate for you if necessary. And then if you are a person who is supporting a grieving person, um, treat them with the tender and gentle care that you would to someone who has undergone a major medical event mm-hmm. or um or a birth or some other dramatic life change because mm-hmm. that's really what has happened even though the person looks the same on the outside they are dramatically changed on the inside mhm absolutely 
Absolutely. I And I love how you talk about that, you know, in the book, just like, hey, listen, like move your body if you can, like mm-hmm. eat nutritious meals if you can, like things like you can't ignore the physical body that you have, you know, because as you said, you are still alive, you know, mm-hmm. and probably like in your case, have other people depending on you, like your children, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. And so it is important to care for yourself. And if you, if we are someone walking with someone through grief, do the things, mm-hmm. you know, like do the handyman jobs around the house, bring them the food, do the things. Um, I just think it's so helpful. I know you've done a lot of work recently, a lot of writing recently about navigating grief in the holiday season specifically. Mm-hmm. Um, would you talk to us just a little bit about that for people who, you know, oh, it's the most wonderful time of the year, the holidays. But, you know, for people who have lost someone, it's the most horrible time of the year a lot of times. So tell me a little bit about, first of all, maybe your experience dealing with grief during the holidays and then what you would say to others about that. Sure. Um, Well, for me, the holidays since losing Rob have been largely about breaking with tradition. Mm. Um, I I bristle a little at tradition anyways, and I have found it to be, uh, tend to be restrictive and constraining mm. uh, when I think about what has to happen for my life as I move forward. And so um, a lot of the things that we have done as a family have been different than what we have ever done before. Mm-hmm. And it's offered me space to grieve like I needed to, uh, to be with folks who understand loss and are willing to accommodate my needs. And um, and also to give me a chance to dip my toe into this new life that mm-hmm. has been kind of forced upon me and to try to figure out what do I like to do now? Mm-hmm. And so when it comes to navigating the holidays, I always tell folks, go ahead and let the mold be broken. Mm-hmm. The mold has been broken with your loved one's death. Mm-hmm. Do the things that feel most comfortable to you. Mm-hmm. A lot of times we think that traditions will be comfortable because they're things that are familiar that we've done year in and year out. But then we go ahead and do them and we find that they're hollow because the person that we loved is missing. Yeah. And so I encourage, you know, don't don't just default to relying on traditions as a way of comfort. Mm-hmm. Kind of take a posture of curiosity, observe how you feel as you think about uh, planning for a holiday. Make sure that opting out entirely is a valid and worthy option if you need it. And um, and consider what you need most before you go ahead and sort of put on the oxygen masks of those around you, you know, as they say on an airplane, so you know, mm-hmm. put on your own oxygen mask and then assist those sitting. Totally. And I think at the holidays, that's particularly good advice. So for people who are experiencing, maybe this is their first holiday season, mm-hmm. you know, like they have never done a holiday season before without this person. Again, this kind of like calls back to our previous conversation where we were saying it feels like dishonoring if you are flourishing without your person. Mm -hmm. What would you say if someone's like, well, no, I have to do, I have to do the blah, blah, blah that I always did or else it would be dishonoring. I would never want, you know, my person to think that those things don't matter to us now that this, now that they're gone. Do you see what I'm saying? Like, yes. Talk to me about that, like people who are struggling with like, no, I have to do all the things because it would dishonor them to not do them. 
Yeah. Well, that those kind of concerns um, are more about the relationship that you have with the bereaved person than they are about the holiday. The mm. holiday is the catalyst, but I suspect that there are probably a host of other concerns where that person feels bound to, um, to the beliefs, the ideas, the wishes of the deceased person in their life. Mm-hmm. And so there, I would try to separate it out. Okay, what what is the actual concern behind this issue about the holiday? Is mm-hmm. it that um, you have some unresolved frustrations that you need to uh, to kind of work through as you think about your person? Are there some disappointments that you haven't acknowledged yet? Do you need to say, uh, I forgive you for some way that a person um, constrained your life mm. or um, made you feel bound to a particular way of doing things? Yeah. Do you need to feel a sense of release? Um, because... When we deal with those kind of issues, when we deal with the uh, interrelational issues, then I think um, it ripples out in a number of ways into the specifics of things like holidays or even the choice to remarry or Mm -hmm. to move, to choose a new job, any of these uh, life choices that we have to make without our person. We really have to start way back at the beginning saying, is this relationship complete in the way that it needs to be for me to be able to move forward? Complete, not put a box on it, never see it again. But have we have we reconciled with each other in the way that needs to happen so that I can feel freedom to move forward again? Mm-hmm. And of course, that begs the person a question, how do you reconcile with someone who is dead? Right, <laughs> right. You know, you can't go back and have a conversation with a person yeah. now and be like, hey, you know. By the you, way. I yeah. always felt like I had to make a turkey on Thanksgiving and now you're gone and I still like feel like I need to make a turkey. <laughs> yeah. Um, so the grief recovery handbook is a, it's a great resource for um, some of act, some activities that allow bereaved people to complete a relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, they include things like writing a letter to your mm-hmm. loved one and being honest about ways that you have disappointed them or they have disappointed you. Um, there are scripts for for saying I'm sorry, for offering forgiveness and receiving forgiveness. Um, there are opportunities within that um, that workbook to actually do the work that I think allows people to enter the holidays or any number of changes after their loved one dies with um, a sense of resolution mm-hmm. that I can move forward with this because it's best for me. Yeah. And that doing what is best for me is actually the best way that I can honor this person's uh, involvement in my life. Yeah. Where can we get the workbook before I forget? Um, oh, that you can find on Amazon anywhere. It's, okay. Uh, the Grief Recovery Handbook. It's a great okay. book. Yeah. Perfect. We will link it in the notes, everybody. <laughs> um, I, I appreciate so much you saying that because I think that it's so awkward. All right, so as if it's not hard enough to talk about death, right? Mm-hmm. But then mm-hmm. if you throw on top of it, you know, I feel like once someone has died, it's it's easy to like elevate them to like sainthood. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? And you might feel very uncomfortable if you have like unresolved issues, like things that you feel still mad at them about, things yeah. that you have resentment about, you know what I mean? And they're gone. And now you feel weird. Like you can't talk about it. That, that would be so disrespectful. You know what I mean? We're only supposed to talk about like missing the person and loving the person. And I just think that 
that's so empowering for you to share that, that like, that's okay. If Mm -hmm. you find yourself having baggage, not just from the fact that this person has died, but also from the fact that like this is earth and relationships are really complicated. And it's like totally plausible that there were some complicated things that went unresolved in your relationship. That's right. And a lot of our bereavement uh, resources, a lot of our grief conversation, the words we use presuppose that the person we've lost is someone that we deeply loved and actually really miss. But the reality is, like you said, that it's a broken world, that we lose people who have been abusive to us, who have been neglectful, who have been deeply disappointing. Mm -hmm. And, you know, what do we do with that loss when we can't resolve it? And um, there's a beautiful book called Forgiving Our Fathers and Mothers by Leslie Leland Fields. Mm -hmm. And she uh, talks through the process of reconciling some of that when the person that you've loved has been hurtful to you and that love has been complicated and you're not able to reconcile with them in the way that you need to, um, that you wait the way that you wish you could, I right. should say. And um, and so for those, you know, we always want to hold space for that, that instead of assuming that the uh, person, you know, maybe it's a colleague in the office who's lost a mom, instead of assuming that your colleague had a great relationship with his mom, just simply say, tell me about your relationship with your mom. Yeah. Because then you have the opportunity, you've opened the opportunity for that colleague to say, hey, you know, it was actually really rough and I'm feeling kind of conflicted about this. Or, um, you know, a lot of caregivers who have been long-term caregivers feel a sense of relief. Totally. Their uh, person dies and they feel guilty about that. You know, how should I feel relieved about this person that I loved? But I also am sleeping better. I'm eating better. My life is coming back to me. Mm -hmm. Uh, I don't feel so physically drained. And I don't know what to do with all of these good feelings that are somehow mixed up with all of the sadness. Um, And so I think, yeah, acknowledging that that grief is multifaceted, that we each come to it in very unique ways that are based on that relationship with the person. um, And that in some way, we will carry that relationship with the person forward. Um, And the best thing we can do is address as much as we can um, so that we can move forward with forgiveness and wholeness, even if we're not able to reconcile that with the person face-to-face. That's so good. It's so good. It's so important. It's so important. And I, I thank you for saying that because I'm sure of it, that there's people hearing this like, oh, I'm so glad, you know, I didn't think that I could admit this before, or I didn't have a language for this, or I didn't really understand how I was feeling about, you know, and I just really appreciate you giving a language to people for that. Um, Clarissa, I mean, I could go on for hours. Like there's so much good stuff. I appreciate the work that you're doing so much. And um, I really do believe that you are making a difference in so many people's lives. And I just, like we talked about, this is not the life that you wanted. And so I just think that it takes like incredible bravery and faith to step into it and say, this is, these are the hands that I, this was the hand that I was dealt, Mm -hmm. you know, and I didn't want it, but I'm going to steward it well. And I think that that's really, really beautiful. And I'm like choked up saying that Mm because I just think that that's really beautiful. And I appreciate you doing that. Thank you. Thank you. 
Um, so it's so awkward to end like this because this was a heavy conversation, but we always end with this stupid question. What's your favorite snack right now? But it feels like completely awkward after this conversation. Not at all. You know, I was even thinking about this favorite snack when we were talking about, you know, eating nutritious meals. And I thought, (laughs) well, there may be a point where all you can stomach is, uh, you know, as a seltzer and some goldfish. Yes. And that counts. So yeah, totally. if I were to have any snack at all, it would be a nice ice cold seltzer, probably like a black cherry flavor Ugh. and a big bowl of goldfish. Honestly, <laughs> it's so funny. Like goldfish, you would never buy those if you don't have kids. Like you exactly. don't really think of it as, yeah. as like a food. <laughs> then you constantly have them in your home when you have toddlers and things like that. And it's so funny. Like this pregnancy, I've been nauseous like all the time. I cannot tell you how many nights I'm like, oh, a big cup of goldfish. Like, yes. I'm like, that sounds like that would just hit the spot. And it does. <laughs> They're delicious. They're great. It's a fantastic snack. I love goldfish. (laughs) Well, Clarissa, thank you so much. This was just so amazing. We'll link everything in the notes for where people can get your book. Where can we find you online? You can find me at clarissamall.com or on Instagram at mallclarissa. I like to hang out there. So yeah, I'd love to connect with any listeners. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thank you. Hey, thanks for joining us today. Don't forget to subscribe and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, CaitlinElliott.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. And hey, if you want to toss us a five-star rating, I would love you forever. Check us out next week for another new episode. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram at so.what.else. Editing and all that stuff by Matt Carpenter with Parable Productions. Parable Productions.